All right, folks, it is great to see you. Let me see the hands of those of you who are ready to hear something from God today. All right, yes, I love it, everybody. Okay, that's fantastic. I'm certainly looking forward to trying to bring to you the text that is in front of us. It's a very powerful text. It's a full text. It's something that is so very practical to our lives, and uh, I'm looking forward to have been all week to, to get into this with you. Welcome to those of you who are in person here in the room. To those of you who are watching online, welcome to you. And to those maybe in the classic venue, if that's where you're checking this out or on the Moon Campus, good to be together even though in different places. I know we're together in heart. I know the we're together in our desire to hear from God today. So looking forward to jumping in to these things with you. Hey, every year, Lake Superior State University in Michigan compiles a lighthearted list of annoying and overused words and phrases that they would, that they're putting out there is this list of phrases and words that should be banned from the English language. All right? They get their list from people all over the country who submit nominations, and then they see how many come in for different words, and then and they go ahead and put out this list. They've been doing it for years. And so some that have been on previous year's lists are words like this. You've got ginormous, that that should be eliminated from the English language. I think they're onto something there. Or ghosting, that's one that's a little more recent. Or bromance. Those are all words that have been out there, and they're like, well, we got to get rid of these. Well, if you think just back to this last year, if you want to think about last year's list, it probably won't surprise you that most of the words or phrases on the list had to do with the coronavirus, right? And so here are some that we've been hearing quite a lot in these uncertain times, right? You've heard that a lot on, on the news, or how we need to pivot, need to pivot from where we've been to somewhere else. Or unprecedented. These are unprecedented days that we live in. Or how about social distancing? You ready to get that out of our language altogether? I think most people probably are. Well, I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, I think there are actually some other ones that I would personally like to nominate to the list of things, words, phrases that we ought to get rid of from the English language. So I thought I'd offer you some of mine. You can come up with some of your own as well. So, so here's one of mine, cray-cray. Right? Have you heard that? Heard that said, right? It just means crazy. I don't even know why we use it because crazy doesn't have any more syllables than cray cray. And when you just say crazy, you don't sound cray cray. We're talking that way, right? Or here's another one I'd love to, I'd love to get rid of. It is what it is, right? You hear that all the time, right? It's just a longer form of, of like, oh well, or a shorter form of, I don't have anything helpful to say, but I just don't want to stop talking, right? And so you, so you just keep saying something else. Or here's one more that I'd get rid of, believe you me. Believe you me. I don't like that. Actually, I, I think that we should definitely get rid of that one because I think Yoda is the only one who ought to be able to out of order words use, right? Yeah, okay. So those are just some. Now, if, if uh, overuse or if the amount of use is the standard that we would use for words or phrases that we might want to get rid of, then the Apostle Paul, all on his own, is working pretty hard to get rid of one word in particular. Because we see it regularly when we come into the, the text that he writes, as we read his letters, we see it over and over again. And actually, 2 Corinthians, the letter that we've been studying, is right up at the top of the list of most frequent uses of this word. And especially in the passage that we are going 
going to be looking at. The most occurrences of it in the whole letter come sort of in sequence right here in our passage for today. And that word that he uses and uses and uses is grace. Grace. Very, very powerful word to be sure. We're going to see it in our passage, which is 2 Corinthians. Go ahead and turn to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Not the whole chapter, but the first 15 verses we're going to be taking a look at. It'll help you to have it open in your lap, as it always will, or on your, on your device, whatever, however you had access to Scriptures. It's always good to have a spot where you can highlight or jot things down or, or something. Maybe bring your own journal. Some of you are doing that, and that's awesome. I love it. But uh, anyway, this is the text that we're going to be in for today. Now, normally, when we think about grace, you might say, oh, I know what that is. Grace is unmerited favor. I've heard it all the time. Unmerited favor that comes to us from God because of, because of Jesus' work on the cross. It's something that we couldn't do for ourselves, and He did it for us. And because of the cross, we can have and we can know salvation. And so that's awesome. And yes, that is what grace is, as we oftentimes think about it, to be sure. And we'll see a little bit of that sort of usage in our passage. But Paul is going to use it in a different sort of way and connect it to a different biblical concept altogether today in this passage that we're going to look at. And we need to see it and understand it. In this case, grace is a character trait that prompts expressions of kindness and goodness on the part of the one who has been graced, who has experienced this grace that we're going to be talking about. And this might take you off in a little bit different direction. It certainly will take us in a different understanding and application of what we're going to read, what grace is, and how it influences and should impact our lives and how we live them forward. So today, what we're going to be thinking about, this other area that he takes and applies grace to, is we're going to be talking about the grace of giving. The grace of giving, that's what this passage is about. The Apostle Paul sees this grace alive in some very unusual places and in some unusual people that he wouldn't otherwise be expecting to see it in, but we find it here in this text. And he brings this story out so that we might understand it, so that it might motivate others. Uh, Paul is saying, let me point out some people to you so you can see this, because if you see this, it's going to change the way that you live. It'll change the way that we live if we really can come and understand what he's talking about right here. So that's what we're jumping into. So first of all, to give out of our grace, mean, or out of the grace we've been given, means to display rich generosity. Let's just jump into this and go. To display rich generosity. Now here's the background of this story. Christianity got its start in Jerusalem and in Judea. So we've got a little bit of a map here. You can see way down here in the corner, you've got Israel, you've got Judea, and you've got Jerusalem right down here in the corner. That's where it got to start. That's where Jesus preached and taught. That's where his ministry was carried out. He was crucified there. He rose from the dead there in that location, and he goes ahead, and people are following after him. Now, it created tremendous tremendous division, problems, strife, and many of the people who continued to follow after him certainly galvanized them in their faith, but it created a difficult challenge for them because there were so many people standing against Christ. They were also now standing against those who were followers of Christ. So they were being persecuted. They were being oppressed down here in Jerusalem and in Judea. And on top of that, there's actually a famine that comes upon the people at this same time. And so these same people who are already going through the ringer are also hungry, and they're also in great need. So the Apostle Paul, who is on one of his missionary journeys, is not down here in Jerusalem, though he spent lots of time here. He knows all of these people down here. He's actually up here in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
basically what is today southern Greece and northern Greece. He's been preaching the gospel also here in Asia, Asia Minor. And so he knows of the needs that are existing here, but because of his love for these people, he's inviting the ones who are up here that he's preaching to, these new churches that are being formed, to collect an offering so that he might be able to take it to them back in Judea and Jerusalem so they might be able to bless them there. And there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of great benefits that come from that. One of those is that it's just practically going to meet the needs of the people who are down here in Jerusalem and who are suffering so greatly. But also it's important because it's providing the demonstration of the unity that now exists between those who are believers in Judea and those who are believers in other parts of the world as well. Because the primary people who were believers in Judea were Jews or of Jewish descent. The primary believers up here in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, they're primarily of Gentile descent. These are two groups that were at tremendous odds with one another. So for one of these groups to do and to go generously to provide for the other would have been a huge statement, just even within the church, even within Christendom at the time, that Jesus allows or inspires them to go above and beyond for those purposes. And so now Paul is up here, and if we can jump to the next map, he's up here in Macedonia and Achaia, and he says that he's going to be talking about these churches of Macedonia, which primarily he's talking about Philippi, which if you've been in the church at all or you know your Bible, you know that this is one of the main um, places that a letter is written to, Philippians. Thessalonica, also the recipients of a letter of Paul. And Berea, these are the churches of Macedonia that he's going to be talking about as this passage goes on. And then what our passage is doing is it's actually giving us a glimpse to how this offering is going that he's collecting up here among these churches in Macedonia, as well as in Corinth, all right? So that's the setup. That's what's going on. That's what stands behind this passage as we go ahead and dig into it. So take a look at this passage, chapter 8, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. It says this, Paul's writing to the church there in Corinth, and now, brothers and sisters, he's writing to the people in Corinth, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There's our word. They're displaying rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. There's something very special about the heart and the actions of these churches here, the people of these churches of Macedonia. There is a motivation in them that is beautiful and it is bold. And the thing that is motivating them to give the way that we just read that they are giving, which is out of the ordinary, is grace. It's this attribute of grace that God has deposited in them as believers in Jesus. Now, the pattern of giving that these believers are called to is this grace giving. It's choosing to display rich generosity, not because we must, but because we can. And that's very important. We'll dig into that more as we go. If our giving is merely out of obligation or it's something that we feel that we owe, that's not giving. That's certainly not grace giving. That's paying a bill. If we're just doing it out of obligation, it's no more than how you might pay the bill to the electric company or some similar thing. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who were in the church at that time and people who continue in the church today who view their giving more as an obligation or a bill to be paid. It's something that I do so that 
God won't be mad at me, or it's something I do so that when I get to the Bema seat, to the judgment seat of Christ, I'll have something that will commend me, so it's something I know I've got to do. But there's no joy in that. There's no encouragement in that because it merely engages your wallet. It doesn't engage your heart. Grace-giving starts in the heart. Starts in the heart. Paul is celebrating this different way to give. It's not about paying our debt, it's an expression of our devotion. And Paul is highlighting that's exactly what was happening here in these churches in Macedonia. It led them to this grace giving as a demonstration of the fact that even though they were in the midst of severe trial, did you catch that as we read it? Even though they're in the midst of severe trial themselves, even though they are in poverty themselves, the best terminology that Paul has to describe who they are is rich generosity. Isn't that amazing? That should just capture us. See, when, when, you, when you look at their circumstances, you might kind of be surprised by their level of giving. You would think, look, these guys are in tough straits themselves. They're just trying to get by on their own. So what they should do, we would might maybe say, is they should hunker down. They should just kind of protect what they've got to make sure that they're going to do okay and be able to sustain themselves into the future because, after all, they don't know what the future is going to be. In fact, one of the biggest objections I hear oftentimes about, well, here's why I can't give because I don't know what the future is going to be. Because until I have that secure, what if I don't have enough when I get to my future? What if I run out? And so it's like I need to protect myself for my future. All right, that's kind of what's being said here by these folks also, and it might be one of your objections as well. So, it wouldn't be safe to give, right? Now, here among these Macedonian churches, they overcome that hurdle. They overcome that hurdle because they know they're not being foolish with their future. They're being faith-filled with their present. This is so important to understand. See, they weren't afraid to let go of what they had because they knew that God would never let go of them. And until we come to understand that concept, that sort of motivation, we're never going to get grace-giving. We're never going to understand what it's about. Now, if you hear that and you're thinking, I could never do that, it's because you've never experienced that grace. If one of the reasons you don't give, if you don't give, or don't give generously, if you don't give generously, is because, well, I have to protect for my future, then you haven't come to understand the nature of grace that this text is talking about. Now, I'm not saying that you don't necessarily have a belief in Christ or that you aren't going to heaven or something like that, but it could be that you're just living out this cheap sort of grace which you're trying to appropriate to accomplish one goal in your life, which is to save you from a Christless eternity, when God desires and has actually poured it for the entirety of your life so that it might fill you so that you can respond out of that which you've been filled with. It might be that you just have a misunderstanding of what grace really is all about. Until we experience the fullness of the grace Jesus provided, we're never going to understand the motive that is moving these Macedonian churches. We might even feel, you know what, they've kind of been forced into it. They've been shamed into it by the Apostle Paul to give in the way that they're giving. That's not what they'd say. The people in Macedonia, they're not complaining at all. Quite to the contrary, look at the end of verse 3. It says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service, of giving to the Lord's people. 
and they exceeded our expectations. Look, as a pastor, I can tell you, it's not every day that people beg me to take an offering, right? That's what they're doing. Please, don't exclude us from the offering. Let us be a part of that. Let us give too. Don't cheat us out of that. That's what's going on here because they know if there's a need to be met, if there's a grace to be given and to be extended, that their desire is to be a part of it. We don't want to miss out. They want to display rich generosity. When grace has filled a life, I don't mean just touched the corner of a life. When it has filled your life, you will naturally respond with rich generosity. And if that's not where your heart is, you need to ask yourself, where's the disconnect between this grace-filled nature of these people in Macedonia who just have the same God that you have and your own response? So, Paul says a grace giver is one who will display rich generosity. That's not all. They're also one who will follow Jesus' example. As Paul goes on, it once again becomes clear that it's not just the Macedonians. They're not just giving this way because they're nice people. It's because they're changed people. That's what makes the difference. Verse 5, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. The reason these people have this attitude to give to bless others that they've never met is because they've been captured by the example of Christ. Look at verse 9. Jump down to there for a second. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Look, Jesus had all the glories of heaven. He had fellowship with God the Father for all of eternity past. And he said, you know what? I'm going to leave the riches of all of that so that I can enter into your poverty, our poverty here on this earth. And that's what it is compared to the glories of heaven. Why did he do that? So that we might become rich, so that we might experience the fullness of all that He had to offer and to bring. And what that does is it brings a grace on us that allows us to be the people that we see here in Macedonia. That's what He's talking about right here. So, unfortunately, it's not something that happens automatically. And you and I have the ability to resist that grace that has been extended to us. And that's why you find believers who are not participating in sort of rich generosity. That's not what they're doing because we haven't experienced or we're, we're choosing to push away that which is already trying to be laid in our lap. That can happen for any of a number of reasons, some of which we've already brought up, trying to secure our own future, not having quite enough trust to believe that God's really going to do what He says He's going to do, and so on. Many, if not most of these people in Corinth weren't doing what God would have called them to do. They're not all grace givers, and so he gives them a little push here. Jumping back now to verse 6, says, so he urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, he helped to start this offering in the first place, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others." 
What happened here is that these Corinthians had been invited to contribute to this offering, and they actually got off to a good start. They said, yeah, we want to be a part of that. In fact, they started to be a part of that. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, it says, uh, and if you want to go back, you can see sort of the origin of this offering, how they should lay aside a certain amount at the beginning of the week and keep them with your income, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you've heard some of that passage. And so they got off to a good start, but somewhere along the way, things stalled out. Maybe because they just stopped being interested in giving, maybe because they forgot. But for whatever reason, they stopped. And Paul's like, look, we got to get going again here. We have to see to this that you follow through. Look, they'd excelled in all of these other areas. Did you notice that in verse 7? Look at it. It says, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and, and so on. But none of those gave them an excuse for neglecting the grace of giving. And it doesn't us either. It's not like, well, I serve here and I serve there and I, you know, I'm in this Bible study and I'm in that Bible study, so I'm very connected. And so that area isn't important. I give my time, and so I don't need to give my resources. Paul says, no, no, no. He says, these guys are awesome also. They excel in faith and in speech and in knowledge and on and on and on. But that doesn't give them excuse for neglecting the grace of giving. The example of Christ is that he held nothing back when he came into this world to save us. That's following Jesus' example, right? He gave everything for us. He didn't come into the world and say, you know what? I love you guys so much, I am going to pour out on you my love. You can have all of my mercy, my grace. I'm keeping that for myself. No, there's none of that. That would be ridiculous. He gave absolutely everything and calls us to respond in following his example by doing the same thing. He was certainly all in. He's calling us to be all in as well. Then he takes that grace and he fills us up with it to overflowing and asks us now to pour it back out out of gratitude for who he is, out of the example we see in Christ who left his glories of all of the riches he had and poured it out for the sake of those who were in need. He says, there's your example. Go and do likewise. Grace of giving means display rich, rich generosity, follow Jesus' example. One more. Ready? Be a willing participant. It looks like Paul is concerned that the Corinthians might not follow through on this prompting. And so he says again now in verse 10, these words, he says, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. In other words, he's saying, you want to know what I think? <laughs> I've got a couple of people in my life who say that to me. You want to know what I think? And I've learned over time that no, I don't want to know what you think. Because it, it always seems to call me out. It always tells me some of the things I'm not doing so well or things that I could do better and, and appropriately so. But that's what Paul's saying here. You want to know what I think? Verse 10, and here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. And regardless of what the Corinthians think in regard, no, we don't want to know. It doesn't matter. He presses on. He tells them anyway. And he tells them what's on his mind, and it's everything to do with follow-through. It's about don't get stalled from where you've been moving. Keep going. Keep going. There's a house on some of the back roads that I, I run, and sometimes I go that way, and I run by this house, and, and on the driveway of that house, there's a car. And the car wouldn't particularly stand out to you, except for the fact, or didn't to me, except for the fact that I noticed as I ran by that the hood of this car was up. And I thought, oh, well, they must be working on the car. There must be some problem. They're doing some fix, something. 
fine. Well, about a, a week later, I was running that same route, and I came upon this same house, and the car still had the hood up. <clears throat> and I thought, oh, well, maybe they needed to get some parts, or maybe they have sort of the auto mechanic skill that I have, and it just takes them a long time to get it done. I first started running by that house 10 years ago. Today, the hood is still up on that car. Even if they would have ordered their parts through the U.S. Postal Service, they'd have had it by now. Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> uh, if they're going to be boos, there have to be some amens, okay? Uh, we just have to balance that out a little bit, if you would, please. All right, <clears throat> they would have had their parts. I'm guessing the problem wasn't the U.S. Postal Service. <clears throat> there we go. But, but the problem had to do with something else. It looks like they got off to a good start, but for some reason they haven't completed that project. They haven't gotten to finishing it. And I'm guessing that some of you also have trouble finishing projects from time to time because I saw some of you spouses elbowing the other one while I was talking about it. You know who you are, all right? See, all of us have trouble finishing things sometimes, and the Corinthians did too. They weren't finishing what they had promised that they were going to do. So Paul speaks into that. He prompts them uh, here again on this relief offering in second half of verse 10. If you look at it, it says, Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. That's awesome. Way to go. Sign us up, they said. They started well. Paul says, apparently something happened, because in verse 11, he says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Paul's saying that it's great that they have this desire to give and have committed to do so, but the desire wasn't, to, wasn't going to accomplish ever, anything. It wasn't proving their faithfulness. It wasn't doing anything to benefit the people in Jerusalem just because they had a notion that, yeah, we should do that, or yeah, we want to do that. It wasn't until they actually follow through with it, it's making any difference at all. Follow through is essential. When I read that, when I think about that, I think about a family from Pathway. They were a part of us at a time when we had one of those projects where we'll ask people to, to pledge for a building or whatever the project might happen to be, and, and we make the pledges, and then they're usually collected over a three-year period of time. Well, this family did exactly that. Well, partway through, about halfway through the project, his job changed, and so they needed to move out of state, which, of course, meant they had to leave Pathway, which they did, but before they left town, the guy said to me, he said, I know that we made that pledge to be a part of this, and here's the amount we pledged, and here's the duration. I understand all of that. And just because we're leaving, this is a commitment we made. We're going to see it through. And they did. 
And I thought that was fantastic. And I think about them when I think about this passage. It's a beautiful example also of what the Apostle Paul is calling people to right here in our passage. Then Paul adds at the end of verse 11 that they should give according to your means, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. What's he saying here? Well, as we saw earlier, these Macedonians were giving beyond their means. They were giving more than they actually had to give, which is fantastic. That's something that grace giving sometimes does. It leads us to the place where we just even give something that doesn't look reasonable because of the measure of faith that has grown in us, the measure of grace that has grown in us. And there are times when God may very well call you to that. And when that happens, go for it. If He's calling you, do whatever He's calling you to do. But Paul is saying here that that's not the ordinary way that this happens. He says, give according to your means. He's not calling them on a regular basis to give more than what they have. That doesn't even make sense. Is it still supposed to be generous? Absolutely. Is it still demonstrating rich generosity? Yes. Should it be sacrificial? Certainly it should. It should be in keeping with the degree of grace that we've experienced. That's how we ought to respond. So it's going to be sacrificial. It's going to be generous. But he says, in keeping with what you've received. He says, don't feel that you have to live up to the standard of what the Macedonians have done on a regular basis. He wants to be sure we understand. That's very understanding of of him. See, he says that God's not going to judge you based on the standard of what somebody else gave because you've got differing incomes. He's going to judge you based on how you've responded with the things that you have. The bottom line is that we don't all have the capacity to give the same amount, but we do have the capacity to give out of the same Spirit, to give out of the same grace if you're a believer in Jesus. And so that's what he's calling us to. Then he wraps up this section with these words beginning in verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little." There have been some who have suggested that Paul here is trying to make a case for the redistribution of wealth so that everybody has exactly the same possessions and the same resources and everybody has the same income. And I can see why they're trying to use these words to make that argument, but that's not what this text is about. The passage isn't about everyone being made equal in income, but everyone being made equal in generosity. That's what he's talking about. He wants to be sure that when there's a need that arises, that the people who have the ability to meet the need actually step up and do something about it. Instead of just standing back and saying, well, too bad for them. They should have cared for their resources like I did mine. No, he's saying if there's a need, those who have should step in so that every need is met. And sometimes that may come reciprocally back in your direction as well. See, Paul assumes people are going to be at different levels financially, and that's why he says to give according to your means. He doesn't mean to be making an argument to try to level out everybody's means so everybody always appropriately gives exactly the same amount. That's not what this is about. It's all in keeping with how he ends with this quotation from his, uh, Exodus 16 about the manna. That's this last verse here, 
The, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. God provided the manna for the people of Israel as they made their way through the wilderness for those 40 years of wandering. And in the morning, though, the manna would be available and they could gather up what they needed for that day and, and consume it so that their food needs would be taken care of. They were not to gather up more than that day. And if your desire was to go ahead and get more so you might have some for tomorrow or so you might be able to provide for yourself for the whole week, what happened to the manna? It spoiled, right? It rotted. It started to stink. The fact is that God will provide for His people. He always has, and He always will. We might not always feel like we've been given all that we want to have in order to be able to feel that we're able to secure our own future, but we've never been intended to secure our own future. We've been intended to rest in the provision of God. That's what the ultimate lesson would be about. You're not to be securing just your own future. Does that mean that you shouldn't save? Does that mean that you shouldn't have a retirement account? No, you should. There's, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but it does mean that you shouldn't let future planning for tomorrow get in the way of godly living for today, right? You're not to be storing up for yourself to the degree that now you don't even need to consider God because you've got it taken care of. And so often that's exactly what happens. As soon as we get to the place where we feel sort of the satisfaction in our income, the satisfaction of I can take care of things on my own, all of a sudden our need to rely on God goes away. Some of you might be finding yourself right now in that position. Grace-giving recognizes that the one who's extended His grace to us will continue to extend His grace to us. If we can trust Him for salvation, we can certainly trust Him for providing for us in other areas. It's that understanding that allows us to open up our hands even when there's an uncertain future. Even when we don't know for sure, is, is that going to be enough in my bank account? What if this comes up? What, you have no idea what's going to come up. What you know is that God always provides. And it allows us to be grace givers, to open up our hearts, to open up our hands, even though we don't know all of the details of everything that's coming. Because you never will, and if you wait for that security, you'll never get there, and you will never become a grace giver. So what I want to challenge you to today is that you would become a grace giver. I want to invite you into that. I want you to experience what these Macedonians knew. Look, if anybody had sort of the justification for sitting it out, these guys are described as people who are in severe trial and extreme poverty. But they don't sit it out. In fact, they beg for the opportunity to get in. That's grace. That's grace giving. And I want to encourage you to give that a try. You might say, well, well, what would that look like? Grace giving is giving out of the fullness that has been given to us. So to the degree that you feel gratitude toward God, to the degree that you feel that Jesus in coming into our world died to provide you with an opportunity for eternity with Him, Respond accordingly. You say, well, I thought it was 10%. I thought you were supposed to tithe. Well, as we've talked about before, 10% is an Old Testament concept. That's law giving. The law said you need to give 10% of what your income is. This is grace giving. It's something that's very diff different. 
Now, is there anything wrong with 10%? No, not if that's the degree of grace that you believe that God has poured into your life. Go there. Carolyn and I started when we were first married with 10%. Actually, that's what we'd been taught. And so it's like, well, I guess, I guess that's where we start. And so we did. And that was awesome for a while. Then we come to understand a little bit more about grace giving and, and God's blessing. And all of a sudden, 10% just didn't seem like that's what God would call us to. And so we started to raise it and raise it from, from that point on. And that might be exactly where you are. You might be at that 10% really just giving out of law because that's what they said you're supposed to do. I do that. I probably have more resource than that, but I do that because that's all that God requires. What God is looking for isn't a requirement. God is looking for to what degree do you feel that God's grace has been poured out into your life, and how are you going to respond appropriately out of the gratitude that you feel in your heart? The Macedonians are doing that, and so even though they are in extreme poverty, they give with rich generosity because of all of the grace that they know has filled their heart the grace they know that has been poured out to them, and the gratitude that they feel couldn't keep them from doing anything other than what they do. So, that's simply what I would give to you as a way to prayerfully consider where do you feel that your relationship is with God? To what degree do you believe that He has poured His grace into your heart and life? And what would that mean of you in response? And whatever that is, do that. If it's not 10%, it's not 10%. It might be more. It might be less. But what is it relative to the grace that you feel in your spirit? What has God done for you? Respond accordingly. Grace giving. If we can do that, we will be those people. We will respond that way. And that's what I invite you into. That's what Paul invites us into, challenges us into. So I would just ask that you would not just let this slide by, that you not just sort of stick it off in a corner, but you'd spend time talking with your spouse, praying together, asking what does God have in store for me, for your benefit, because it's the Macedonians who you can see in this text are getting the greatest blessing of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage, just such an amazing encouragement on the part of these Macedonians who were in more dire straits than what most of us have ever been in ourselves. Yet they're the ones who are demonstrating this grace that has been poured on them that they have in turn poured out. Lord, I just pray that that would be us. That we would be ones who have been so captured by your love, by your mercy, by your grace that we can do no less. Lord, help us to extricate ourselves from law-giving and move ourselves into grace-giving. might be that the amounts actually are the same, but the motivation is different, and we need that. Lord, help us to be people who have the grace of giving, displaying rich generosity, following Jesus' example, and being a willing participant. Lord, make us those people for your glory and our benefit and the benefit of others who will receive and whose lives will be enriched because of the way that we have poured into them through ministry, through other means of giving. 
Lord, it can be difficult and challenging. Oftentimes, finances are one of the last things that we submit to you. So even though there's grace that has filled other corners of our lives, we haven't allowed this aspect of grace to permeate our being, our spirit, our heart. And so that we're slow in responding. Lord, open, open our minds, open our hearts, that we would know the grace of giving, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.